This week we will be looking at the first part of Revelation 20. And uh, I don't know how much you all pay attention to, I don't know know what to call it, popular culture, I guess. Um, Interesting thing happened last week. When we were looking at Revelation 19 and Jesus judging the earth and his right to judge the earth, I pointed out that, I mean, all sin deserves to be judged. But when that time comes, the earth has openly and knowingly rejected God's gift of Jesus. They have openly rejected God. They have, uh, those who will be judged have chosen to worship Satan. So last Sunday night, I had no idea that the Grammys were happening. Evidently, the Grammys were last Sunday night, and I saw on Monday morning, CBS had aired a live satanic worship service on television. And I was somewhat shocked, and I I thankfully did not see the whole video. I, I saw a little clip of the very beginning, and... And this was just outright worship of Satan on television. Add to that that the person who was going to be doing this song, which I guess was named Unholy, had put shortly before he did it on Twitter that he was so excited for what was about to happen. And CBS, the network, responded, we are ready to worship. And that is nothing compared to what what is coming. There were some I saw this week that said, oh, this is is no big deal. What are you making a big deal this for? There were many on the conservative side that were just blown away like I was that something like this would ever happen on television uh, that would be supported and praised. So as I was thinking about that this week and what we're going to be looking at in Revelation 20, I'm thinking about, you know, we are a year and a half away from another election. And, you know, I look back through the elections throughout my life. Uh, I was only six when George Bush Sr. got elected. But I remember Clinton's first election in 92. I went with a party with my parents to my dad's secretary's house, and her husband was a Democrat, and he was thrilled, and everyone else in the room was dismayed, and then happened again in 96, and in 2000, I was a freshman in college. I remember staying up most of the night watching election results come in. I had no idea it was going to be three months or two months, whatever, until we found out who won the election. I mean, think about all these things, and I remember in each of those, and the ones down the line, the last several, that you have this feeling like, man, I really hope the guy I voted for wins. You know, look at everything that's going on in our country right now, and I, you know, I don't know who's going to be running, who will be on the ticket in a year and a half, but something's got to change. But in the end, while it will affect, it may affect our finances, it may even affect how we are allowed to or not worship openly, but in the end, no president, no ruler in this age is going to change the hearts of people. That you can look at a place like Florida where you have a governor who is saying that this is the state where woke comes to die and he has made policies that have helped curb some of these things, but it hasn't changed a single heart. 
the hearts that are against sin are thrilled. The hearts that are for sin are enraged. If you read some of the things that people on the left have to say about DeSantis, you would think that he was out there murdering puppies. I mean, he hasn't changed a single heart. Our country is not going to get fixed by a better president or a better Congress or better nothing. Only Jesus can change hearts. And that is what our country needs. That is what our world needs. And so why we can go on as Christians, why we can strive and endure is because we know Jesus is coming back. And we know he will reign. And he will be the first perfect ruler this earth has ever seen. I think of in the Bible, the, you know, of all the rulers that are there, King David is praised as much or more than any other, a man after God's own heart. And you look at his terrible sin issues and the judgment that he had to face as a ruler from God for his mistakes. There's never been a perfect ruler on this earth. But one day there will be. And so last week we looked that Jesus is coming back on a white horse and we will be with him. He has raptured his church. The earth has been in seven years of turmoil. And then the heavens are opened and there is Jesus ready to come and judge. To face his enemies that have gathered against him and he will win. Then we get to chapter 20. So in chapter 19, as he comes, we saw him take care of his enemies, those that were gathered against him, and then he takes care of the beast and the false prophet. And then as chapter 20 begins, he takes care of his last enemy. We'll read our whole passage today, so we'll look at 1 through 10. Then I saw the angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And I saw the thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast nor his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. He will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and their beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, 
where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Heavenly Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that, that you will be with us, that as your spirit opens our hearts to your truth, that we will rejoice in this future kingdom of Jesus and that we will live our lives today preparing for it. In Jesus' name we pray. So as it started there, John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand. I mentioned this right from the start. So, I mean, there are a couple different views of this, what is happening here in chapter 20. Uh, there are some that think that this is John restating what happened in chapter 17. There are those that view the reign of Christ as a spiritual reign in our hearts right now. I believe that this is a, John is giving a sequence of events. The NASB here says then, it can be translated, and then. This, I think, is John saying he saw this happen, this happen, and then he saw this. That this is a timeline he is giving of what is being revealed to him. And so this is following immediately after what we just looked at in chapter 19. So then I saw the angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand. So John sees this vision of the angel with the key to the abyss, which is really like it's going to be a, a prison for Satan. As you notice here as we'll go through this, it, unlike the beast and the false prophet, it doesn't talk about him being tormented during this time, but just this, he is contained He's going to be bound, you know, things beyond our comprehension. It's can't bind a spirit being with a physical chain, but that God has enabled this angel to bind him. So you know that even though Jesus defeated Satan at the cross, uh, he did not bind him then. We see throughout the New Testament, uh, 1 Peter 5.8 probably being one of the clearest ones, but many other places talking about uh, Ephesians 4 you mentioned prince and power of the air Peter again Peter 5.8 mentions this talks about Satan we need to be on the lookout for him because he's ready to devour us like a lion as we see in the book of Job where God has allowed Satan during this time to have access to people of the earth and up until Revelation 12 he has access to heaven and there he's kicked down from heaven and he goes into overdrive, tormenting the earth and deceiving people. That at this time, God, who is over all things, is going to bind him and keep him locked up. Verse 2, And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. It's interesting. I mean, John doesn't want us to have any misconception about who he's talking about here. I think what we see here is that John, the church that he is writing to, the, the seven churches that originally received this letter, the church as a whole, as it spread, was under great persecution. And I think that the, the teaching was widely known then who was behind that persecution. And so John wants them to have no doubt about God's sovereignty over him and his ability to, to control him, that he cannot fight this. So he shows how he is 
bound here for this thousand years, and it is definitely him. He gives four names there, reinforcing names that are used throughout Scripture. In Revelation, it's, he's most referred to as the dragon. The serpent of old takes us all the way back to Genesis. The devil and Satan are his most common biblical names. And he wanted to make sure they knew. Yeah, him, God is going to send an angel and give him the power to bind him. And he's going to be put into the abyss for a thousand years. Again, this, this brings us to, we see the thousand years there. There are many who, when interpreting the book of Revelation, because there is a lot of figurative language that will take almost everything as figurative. And that a thousand years, while it can be used figuratively in the language of that time, that this is literally a thousand-year period, I think is supported by the fact that there are so many numbers in the book of Revelation that aren't figurative. In fact, I, I don't know of really any that are. It's that the things that are figurative are John trying to describe things that he cannot comprehend. And so that when God gives him a revelation of something specific, like a number that he can portray to us, that he is, he is passing on something that God has told him that is literally true, and that there is a literal thousand-year reign of Christ coming. That Satan during that time will be bound for a thousand years. Which, verse 3, And he threw him to, into the abyss, and shut it and seal it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. I think I put it in my notes later because we'll read it several times, but uh, it is repeated six times through this first ten verses, this thousand years. That gives even added support to that this is a literal thousand years. Uh, Sort of like... When you interpret Genesis and the creation story, that, that yes, a yom is the Hebrew word for day. It could be interpreted as a period of time, but the fact that God repeats it over and over, the night and day, or day and night on the first day, um, and that the, is repeated, it, it points to it being a literal seven-day period. So as here, we see this repetition of this thousand years. This isn't uh, a period of time an unknown period of time, a figurative amount of time, that this is literally a thousand-year period. I think as we interpret this, we not only look at the the context of the book and the numbers used, but specifically in these ten verses, that repetition points again to this being a a literal thousand-year period that is yet to come. It says that there that, that Satan can't deceive the nations... Who are the nations? We will be in the millennial kingdom, but we aren't going to be the nations. There will be Old Testament saints there, but they won't be the nations. That during that period of tribulation, there are going to be a large number of people who survived the tribulation who were not judged because they were believers in Jesus Christ. They did not take the mark of the beast Some of this is going to be shown here coming up, but those people are going to, unlike us, we will have, we will have been raptured, we will be given spiritual bodies that I believe will be, as we read about Jesus after his resurrection, that that our future is going to be in a body 
that isn't going to age or get thick or anything else. And, and some of those things we can, we'll be looking at more extensively as we get to chapters 21 and 22 and looking at eternity. But here we see these people, the nations that Satan is no longer allowed to deceive. It is those people that they live through the tribulation and nothing changes for them. That they come into this millennial kingdom in a physical body. And so for them, Satan is removed and so they cannot be deceived. That during this time, that as Jesus is beginning his reign, his kingdom, that there is no one to deceive them. And I believe that during this time that lifespans are going to go back and look like pre-flood lifespans. So you think of if aging takes much longer and there isn't sin in the world that people are going to be able to reproduce and have children and have children and and that the population of the earth is going to uh, fill back up very quickly under Jesus's perfect reign. And so that that is the people that we are, are seeing here as the nations that Satan, unlike he has been throughout history and especially during the time of tribulation, been deceiving them. So he has from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve in the garden until today and into the future, uh, that that will no longer be the case. And that is the reason being bound. Verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on the forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So John is seeing two different groups of people. He's seeing the first group on thrones and judgment was given to them. You think back to the book of Matthew when in Matthew, in Matthew 19, when we see the rich young ruler come to Jesus, and Jesus tells him to sell all he has and come follow him, do you remember what Peter's response was? Peter says, well, well, Jesus, we gave up everything for you. I mean, he'd given up his job and where he lived and just followed Jesus. I've given up all of this. What do I get out of it? Jesus didn't chastise him for it. Matthew 19. Starting in 27. Then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will be there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are the first will be last and the last will be first. But Jesus is promising to his twelve disciples this position of ruling and reigning with him. And for them specifically to be over the 12 tribes of Israel, we've looked at several times the places in Paul's writings where he talks about reigning with Christ that in Romans 8, 17, that those who, they are heirs of God and they are co-heirs with Christ if they suffer with him, meaning they will reign with him. 2 Timothy 2, 
11 to 13, talking about that if we've died with him, we will live with him. If we endure with him, we will reign with him. That this is this, this promise of reigning with Christ. And in that time, the, the, these thrones that he sees them sitting on, it points to that person who would, would rule and judge. Um, you see that in places like 1 Corinthians 6, 2. Paul says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? In their arguments and judgments against one another, Paul is pointing to, he was trying to prepare them to mature to get to the point where they were ready to, to judge. He's pointing to the millennial kingdom. This is also something that we looked at when we looked at the letters to the churches that Jesus' promises to those who would overcome in Revelation 2, 26 to the church of Thyatira, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as vessels of the potter that are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my father. To Laodicea, who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Again, a reminder that we see from Jesus in his, what he told the disciples, how he lived his life, that ruling is serving. That this isn't sitting on a throne and having everyone serve you, as our picture of a king is. Jesus chided his disciples for that, that they were picturing ruling with him in a kingdom they thought was coming in their lifetime as ruling as a Gentile ruler does. But Jesus said that isn't it at all. But to rule is to serve, just as the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. That is what our picture of this is here, that, that if we are faithful and overcomers in this life, that we will be given this opportunity to to do what we are created to do, and that is to serve, to serve with Jesus. Likewise, that with that first group, he then sees this second group, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So this second group, likewise, is not a part of the church. They are part of the tribulation age, but they were killed for their faith. And here they experience resurrection and are given resurrected bodies. And they too, for their faithfulness, are given the opportunity to reign with Christ. It's interesting here, referring to him as, as Christ here is the anointed one. This is pointing to the, all the Old Testament prophets of this God and his anointed one. And that this is, this is the fulfillment of, of what has been promised throughout the generations. Of what, you know, when Jesus came to earth, the people were looking for a political Messiah. They were looking for this kingdom that God had promised them. That all of those promises to to Abraham and to David and all those things that God throughout the years had told Israel he was going to do, they were looking for fulfillment then. 
John here is pointing to those things being fulfilled here by God's anointed one, who is Jesus Christ. Verse 5, And the rest of the dead do not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. So we'll look at next week in the latter part of chapter 20. There will be a resurrection of all of those who have never believed in Jesus Christ for eternal life. They will be raised to judgment. The resurrection he's speaking of here is a resurrection uh, to life. So the rest of the dead he's talking about, there aren't other saints who aren't going to experience the millennial kingdom, that, that all of those throughout all of history who have trusted in God's promise of a Messiah in the church age who have believed in Jesus Christ for eternal life will be there. But the rest of the dead are not yet raised. Look at resurrections in throughout Scripture. I mean, we have, he calls it here the first resurrection, really in a, in a timeline, if you're making a timeline of resurrections. I think what he's speaking of there is he's differentiating between the resurrection of saints and the resurrection of the wicked. Uh, and so, because throughout Scripture, you have Jesus Christ, first of all, who was resurrected after he was in the tomb for three days. And he is the first fruits of the resurrection. You look at others who were were resurrected. Uh, there were some who were, you know, we saw people coming out of the grave right after Jesus' crucifixion. Although I believe that was probably a temporary thing, like Lazarus. But for us, the church age, that we are raptured in First Thessalonians four, Paul is comforting them by, yeah, those who have died didn't miss out. In fact, God is going to bring them up first. They get a head start on us. So there is a resurrection there at the, the rapture. He's going to, as we read today in our scripture reading, he's going to resurrect the two witnesses during the tribulation. And the Old Testament saints will be resurrected, and the tribulation martyrs, as we see here, are resurrected. Verse 6, he then says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So we look at that specifically here he's pointing to those from millennial or the tribulation that were martyred. But I believe that first resurrection again is all of the saints who have been resurrected prior to this time. Those who will get to enjoy this promised kingdom of Jesus Christ reigning on this earth. They're blessed. We are blessed. We're going to be a part of that. For us, again, it will be at the rapture. Maybe it will be today and we won't have to experience death. But we will be there and we will be a part of this in resurrected bodies. The second death there is, obviously we look at that as being the, that there is a physical death that we all know. And then for those who, have not believed there is a second death, this physical death, or a spiritual death, the separation, eternal separation from God. And it's saying here, we looked at this actually very early in our time in Revelation, that um, it's a use of a, a, like a figure of speech when he says, over them the second death will have no power. Like they are going to be so far removed from even the thought of a second death that in their resurrected glorified bodies that they are 
the thought of them even being touched by the second death is absurd there. And so they are, they are blessed. And they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Again, priests point to those who serve, who are, are serving God in this time. And reigning with him again is this opportunity to serve and this opportunity to be close to him be working alongside of him and for him and serving by ruling the nations. Again, I put here, many of the the promises to the overcomers in the letters of the seven churches, you see their fulfillment in this. And that's what Jesus promised them. He he told them what, what he was seeing in their churches and the things that they were doing right and the things that they were doing wrong. And to some of the churches, it was all right. And he, keep doing what you're doing. A church like Laodicea, where everything had come off the rails. You've got to turn it around. Because to those who overcome, to those who endure with me, who serve me and glorify me in this life, this is their opportunity in the kingdom to come. When we get to verse 7, concludes that thousand-year period. It says, when the thousand years are completed... Satan will be released from his prison. And this is the sixth time that thousand years is verses two, three, four, five, six, and seven. All mention a thousand year period. And as it ends here, it is mentioned again. And we see the release of Satan from the abyss that he has been held in, his his prison. It's interesting. And this is a release. He does not escape. God is in complete control of what is going on here. And so this is, by divine plan, God lets him go. And again, as I said, the earth has been, the population of the earth is decimated throughout the tribulation. And then there's this great judgment. And all of those who failed to believe in Jesus Christ, who rejected him, who rejected God's grace, will be taken off of the earth. And so the earth has been repopulated in the thousand years and Satan is released to again deceive them there are many things that that God does that seem so odd to us or foreign or I mean it's hard to wrap your mind around it like why why not just why not just keep him bound why not judge him then you you sent the beast and the false prophet to the lake of fire why did you just bind Satan? The best, best explanation I, I guess I've heard or that in my understanding of things I've read, I mean, if you look at all of Scripture through this lens of God bringing glory to himself, and that when Satan fell, that he said that I am worthy to rule, I am worthy to be loved, I am worthy to be worshipped, and God knows that he is the only one who is. And that we see here at the end, even though we've had a thousand-year period with Jesus Christ sitting on the throne, and the most perfect kingdom that has ever been, you still have people who are willing to be deceived, who don't want to give God themselves. They want control for themselves. Again, that's Satan's great lies, that you don't need God to rule over you. You can rule for yourself. 
You can choose for yourself. And here, and so we see this one last time, that even though we don't know how long Adam and Eve were in the garden, I don't think it took them very long to sin. Here God has given mankind a thousand-year period with all of the saints of all time prior to then, all those except for the believers who lived through the tribulation, are there in glorified bodies and are serving God and working with him. And this earth is it's experiencing something it never has. And yet at the end of that time, we see this what I've heard called the incorrigibility of Satan. Despite the fact that he knows what is coming, he knows that God is in control, he knows that he has been bound and there was nothing he could do about it, that he will be cast in the lake of fire, he still comes out and incites a rebellion and mankind is still fooled. It won't be all of mankind, but as he describes here in verse 8, that he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog to gather them together for war and the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. That despite, despite Jesus Christ's perfect reign in this earth that mankind and our desire for control for we want to it is not naturally within us to want to worship God. We want to worship ourselves. And so they take this opportunity to be deceived and they gather again, as happened a thousand years before, to face the Lord. Verse 9, And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. God is not messing around. The time has come that this final rebellion is just going to be quelled like that. And then all of those who have not believed are gone. Soon to be resurrected again to come to the white throne judgment. But Satan here is finally judged for the last time in verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Satan is, is dealt with. He is, he is done. Again, and the rest of chapter 20 is the great white throne judgment where all of those who have not believed will be judged. We'll be looking at that next week. But now that Satan is gone, at this point, sin is no more. And as we get to revel in chapters 21 and 22 and looking at eternity, a new heaven and a new earth, and sin being no more, I said one of the main reasons I wanted to go through this book, I, I think that this book, more than any other, should give us a heart for the people around us. And in the letters to the churches, and Jesus praised the church at Ephesus that, that they didn't tolerate evil. I think our world is pushing us, is driving us to tolerate evil. And I think sometimes the more that you see it, the more that you are bombarded by it, that we can become less and less sensitive to it. That who knows, should the Lord tarry 10 years from now, a satanic performance on television may not raise even a single eyebrow. But as we see these things, as we see the judgment of sin, as we 
the heart of mankind, even under the perfect rule of Christ, it should give us a sensitive heart to the things of God and the things of man and help us prepare for that glorious time where we will be on this earth under the reign of Christ. It's funny, I've always joked people, I joke with people now because California is so off the rails that you know, I don't tell people that I grew up there lightly. <laughs> yeah, I grew up there, but that's, I'm not one of them. <laughs> I got out when I was 18 and I didn't go back. But I've always said, if it weren't for all the people, what a wonderful place to live. I mean, it was 65 to 75 in the winter. It was 75 to 85 in the summer. The ocean was there. The mountains were there. That was beautiful. My dad told me a long time ago, we were talking about the Millennial Kingdom, and he goes, you know, I hope I've been faithful enough. I'm going to put in for Dana Point. (laughs) That if I get to rule a city, maybe God will let me have that one. Good luck. (laughs) But this is something that we are, this is what we are living for now, to have an eternal perspective points to this thousand-year reign and how glorious that will be, and then a new heaven and a new earth, that, that eternity is not going to be floating on a cloud somewhere, that God is going to use this earth, and then he is going to destroy and make a new earth or remake this earth, refashion it, and bring down heaven to earth. And that the physical existence we know is something that we are preparing for a physical existence and perfection with God. As we read these things, we need to rejoice, take comfort in them, know as we see our world embracing sin that that is not who we are called to be. We are called to stand up against it and be voices of truth. Would you pray with me?